the reading of God's word while we remain standing. And it's taken from John chapter 9. We're going to see the same passage again from verse 1 to 7. And here is God's word. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming while no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in a pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Please be seated, the word of the Lord. Friends, if you are here with us uh, today, but you were not here last Sunday, you're going to miss the first half of this uh, sermon series, kind of a mini-series from John chapter 9. But last Sunday, if I can just summarize that in a few sentences, what we heard uh, from this um, um, passage was that the gospel, the gospel is completely different from all these religious teachings when it, when it comes to understand why we have suffering in our lives. And the gospel tells us that suffering is not a random thing that happens to our lives. Suffering is not meaningless. Suffering is uh, something that God custom designs for each one of his children for the sake of his glory and for our good. And that's why we know that in Jesus Christ, our suffering has meaning. So that's basically what we discussed last Sunday. And today I'm, I'm going to focus on John chapter 9 from a slightly different angle and we look at it from the lens of disability. This is covering obviously the entire chapter, but you have read uh, verse 1 <coughs> through to 7. So why don't we uh, look at this under three headings. The first one, disability and sin. And the second one, disability and Christians. And the last, disability and the gospel. So let's look at the first one, disability and sin. In John uh, chapter 1, if you remember months ago, exactly in the month of April, we started this series of uh, coming and see Jesus from the gospel of John. In his prologue, he had indicated that Jesus had come to the world as the light of the world. But his very coming into the world had exposed the darkness. Now the consequences that Jesus experienced is that this darkness that was exposed by the coming of Christ was always struggling against the light and it constantly sought to extinguish the light. What it means is that Jesus had oppositions. The Jews and the religious leaders were becoming more and more hostile towards Jesus. And as we uh, come to the, the, uh, uh, the ninth chapter of this gospel, 
we saw that the plot taken and they actually was, uh, were ready to actually stone um, uh, Jesus. Now, in this particular juncture of, of the Gospel of John, he saw this blind man. The blind man obviously did not see him, but Jesus saw him when he walked uh, passing this um, blind man. And he had, as we saw last Sunday, congenital birth. That is, he was blind since he was born um, on, on this planet. Now, the disciples then assume there's a direct correlation between a specific scene and the man's disability. Either this man had seen in the womb of his mother or his parents, his grandparents, or maybe great-grandparents had seen. Those were the two explanations that the disciples can think of. Now, friends, I want you to um, take a step back and, and, and consider how Christians often think that there is a correlation between obedience and blessings. We always have this conception that if we do obey God, if we do nothing that is sinful, we're going to be blessed by God. That has been our understanding for many years, especially if we grow up in a church that teaches moralistic principles and look at the Bible from that moralistic uh, lens. But if, if those of you uh, who study statistics, you would know uh, the difference between these two uh, graphs, right? For those of you who don't, that's fine. I can explain it to you. It's so um, straightforward, right? The, the, the one on the left said that there is a correlation between obedience and blessing. That is, the more you obey, the more you avoid sinful behaviors, the more blessings you will get from God. Whereas the one on the right says that there is no correlation whatsoever, right? It's not negative, it's not positive, it's just nil. There's nothing there. So if you do uh, um, an experimental study, for example, you do not want to have the one on the right, right? But that's not the point. The point is, there's no correlation. How can I say that? Well, think about, for example, two famous stories in the Old Testament, Abraham and Job. Abraham and Job, they both obeyed God. They both are God-fearing men. They showed that first-rate obedience to the fullest extent when they experienced the most gruesome trials of their lives. And yet the outcomes were completely different for Abraham and for Job. When God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, in the end, God saved Isaac. Abraham did not lose his son. But what happened to Job? He lost all his sons and daughters. He lost his entire family. Now, are we saying that Abraham was more obedient than Job? Of course not. So you see, there's a correlation between obedience and blessings. Because Abraham's son was saved, but Job's son uh, were not saved. 
So obviously, the right-hand side uh, graph was the correct one. Now let's uh, go to the next one, and we see a similar thing happens on the other side of the fence. That is, there is no correlation between disobedience and loss of blessings. Right? We, we always think that if we disobey God, we're not going to receive His blessings. If we do sinful behaviors, we're going to suffer as a consequence of that. But apparently that's not the case in the Bible. I want you to think about now two different uh, figures in the New Testament. Peter and Judas. Both men disobeyed God by denying Christ in different ways. But you know what happened? Peter was forgiven. In fact, we're going to see in the next few months, John chapter 21, where we came across Peter being renewed by Christ, but not Judas. We never had a record of Judas being forgiven by Christ. You see, so disobedience and loss of blessings had no correlations whatsoever. Now, what about sin and suffering? It's the same. Now, if we, if we look at uh, John chapter 5, if you remember the story of a paralyzed uh, man who was healed by Jesus, this man was paralyzed for 38 years, and John 5.14 says this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, obviously, with that man, he had done some specific sinful behaviors that was the direct cause of his 38 years of paralysis. So he did some sins, and therefore, he was paralyzed. Which means what? Which means that sin was directly connected to suffering in the case of that man. We also see, for example, in Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to God, when they um, tried to keep some of the money that was supposed to be for God for themselves. They actually died instantly on the spot. So that was suffering, i.e. death, that was uh, correlated directly to a specific sin. But in John chapter 9 that we see today, sin is not directly connected to suffering. This man that uh, was born blind, when the disciples asked, is it his sin or his parents? Jesus said, neither. It's not his sin, it's not his parents' sin, but it's something else. The story of Job told us that he was suffering not because of his sins. The apostle Paul had a thorn that was given to him in the flesh. He was suffering because of that thorn, but not because of his sins. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So friends, what is the point? We can go back to, this, uh, to the previous slide. This was uh, uh, too early. Uh, <laughs> David, thank you. 
what is the whole point of this spurious results of obedience or disobedience? At least there are two lessons that we can uh, learn from, um, from the scripture. Can you go back to the previous slide, David? Thank you. Here is the first lesson. First, we cannot control God with our obedience. See, if, 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 if we can say that if I obey God, God will bless me. If I disobey God, God will remove his blessing. That means you can easily, you will hold the remote control because you can say to God, I'm going to obey you more this month, but please bless me more because it's a, uh, exam season, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to build my business here, so help me, God, and I will uh, obey you more than before. But we cannot tame God. We cannot bribe Him with our moral performance, with our religious uh, obedience, because God can and does do whatever He pleases, because He's a sovereign God. That's the first lesson. The second lesson is that it leads us deeper to God. It leads us into thinking, what is the point of obeying God if that does not attract his blessings in return? The answer is because we now want to get God rather than his blessings. Because we find his beauty is more refreshing than his bounty. His holiness is now more important than our happiness. His wisdom is more valuable than our wealth. And being transformed into the image of Christ is more valuable to us than projecting our image onto our curriculum vitae. Obedience for us now as Christians is no longer transactional. I do this, God does that. It's not what you get from it, but what you become by it that really matters in our lives. So that's why Jesus did not say that the parents and this man seen that caused the blindness. What Jesus is saying is that his congenital blindness was not caused by some specific sin, and it should not be directly attributed to the prenatal sin or to, the, his, to, the, to his parents' sin. See, the question is not why and how, this man became blind. The question is what God's purpose in this man's blindness. God's purpose. See, friends, if you ask uh, an uh, atheistic thinker like Richard Dawkins, the author of this uh, book, The Blind Watchmaker, why this man was born blind, he would say something like this. I can say to you scientifically what happened to this man. I can tell you how this man became blind in a scientific manner, but what is the purpose? That is not even a question. That's what Dawkins would say. Because that's not something that we can understand under a microscope or through a telescope looking outward. Because the question why is irrelevant. Is something that is in the realm of mystery that we cannot put our fingers on. But here, Christianity gives a different answer because Jesus clearly said, and this is where we're going to the next slide, 
There is a purpose. Jesus was asked about the cause of this man's blindness, but he answers in terms of its purpose. The disciples asked why. Jesus answered, what for? Jesus' reply locates a tragedy within God's control. And the key word there is the word death, D-T-H-A-T. And there are two possible meanings. The first one is result, or the second one is purpose. If you go with the first one, it says, Jesus answered, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but with the result that the works of God might be displayed in him. But if you go with option B, and that is the more correct one, in order that the works of God may be displayed in him. What it means is that this blindness is not outside God's control, is not outside God's sovereign um, operation in his life. See, the reason why this man was born blind was because not only he can see natural light, but he can see Jesus, the light of the world. So friend, here, here is a summary of the first point. I want you to get this because I think this is important. Right, the next uh, slide will, will show you that generally speaking, suffering, sickness, disability, and death are connected to sin. But it is wrong to connect suffering, sickness, disability, and death to particular sins. You see, God's original plan was that our physical bodies, your body, my body, would never get sick, would never wear out, would never die. We are created not to die. Have you imagined that? God created our bodies to live forever, but because of the sin of Adam, because he disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, sin came into human life and spread to all of humanity. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, as just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So that's why, generally speaking, universally speaking, suffering, disability, sickness, death, they can be connected to sin. But it is wrong to move from that statement about the origin of human suffering in general to then specific connection between suffering and some particular sin that a person may have committed. So you don't go around and find a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ who's suffering, and then you ask them, what sins have you committed that you are now suffering this pain, that you are now having this impairment, this disability? What are the sins that you have done? That is such a cruel, insensitive, and wrong way to deal with suffering. That's what Job's friends asked him. And God obviously um, corrected their views. You know why, friends? Because Psalm 139 says, for, for you form my inward parts. God himself knitted us together in our mother's wombs. 
And then the psalmist continued, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. And that's why we cannot uh, connect a specific suffering to a particular uh, sin. The second point that I want to uh, get across is disability and uh, Christians. And this is something that I uh, learned um, uh, this week uh, more intensively from this book called Vulnerable Communion, written by uh, Thomas Reynolds and his son called Chris was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, Tourette syndrome, obsessive compulsive, bipolar, oppositional deviant, and attention deficit disorder. Can you imagine all those labels and all those names applied to one child? And this makes his family this makes him the entire life of Reynolds and the families completely different and often a difficult one. This is what he wrote in the book. Our life is an effort to be there for Chris when he cries out after a painful day of social exclusion, emotional outbursts, educational failures, or uncontrollable tics and obsessions. And this is what they struggle with. If a healthy child is a perfect miracle of God, who created the imperfect child? Why would God create imperfection, especially in a child, especially in our child? What are we to say when Chris looks at us and asks this question, why did God make me this way? And Reynolds, being a Christian, he recounted the story of his sons being removed from Sunday school. Friends, this is such a sad story from many churches that I've heard over the years. So people like Chris uh, was removed from Sunday school on account of inappropriate uh, behavior. And Reynolds then concluded that this lack of welcome is rooted in an, in an adequate modern exclusionary anthropology which has been molded by this tyranny of the normal. That's a phrase that I quite like. There is this tyranny of the normal. There are societal expectations that you have to behave in a normal manner, or otherwise you're not welcome here. And this is what he said in, in, in the book. Um, next slide, please. Christians commonly adopt the prevailing medical model of disability. What does it mean? The medical model of disability tends to reduce disability to a problem requiring diagnosis and treatment. A broken object to be fixed or made better or overcome and in doing so, the person with disability becomes reduced to a function of disabilities rather than the other way around. In other words, the medical model reverses the order of things. It reduces a person to, this, uh, to his disabilities or her disabilities, making disability the defining element of the person and thus undermines the dignity, the identity of the person. 
And that's why he never say disabled. He always says people with disabilities. And in, according to this model, disability is an anomaly. It's something abnormal, something that must be fixed. And the next slide, uh, I quoted uh, two more um, paragraphs from, 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 from this book. He said, speaking personally, I can think of numerous instances when my son has taught me to be a better father, a more compassionate human being, a, and a deeper Christian. But, and here's the important thing, he is more than merely a vehicle for my parental and spiritual education. He's not just an object lesson that God has put around his life. Then he continued like this, to treat him this way would have the patronizing effect of reducing his person to an object made useful by his disabilities. It would trivialize the real challenges and difficult moments of suffering and mutes the fact that his life is a life that shines of its own accord and with its own dignity, regardless of whether or not it instructs me or others. I don't know if you get uh, that, that, that uh, important theological uh, view of how we should deal with people with disabilities, and the church has failed over the years. We, as Christians, have failed over the years. And the last uh, um, citation from this book, from, from this book is it, uh, he wrote this, a person with disabilities gives others the precious insight into the woundedness and weakness of human life. But a person with disabilities also gives insight into the humanity of his own world, her own world. And through persons with disabilities, other people can come to know the real, suffering, living God who also loves them infinitely. See, friends, I think this book, uh, which has helped me a lot, is trying to change our understanding of how we view people with disabilities. And you know what? The bottom line that changed his view is none other than the gospel itself. And that's why we turn now to the last point, disability and the gospel. The whole of the Christian gospel is actually uh, was expressed in the blind man's encounters with Jesus. You see, the blind man gives, uh, uh, Jesus gives this tactile sign and an audible sign um, to, this, to this blind man. And next slide, please. Um, the first one is that Jesus made uh, mud with, and then uh, mixed it with his saliva, right? And then uh, put it on this uh, man's eyes. And that reminded us of God creating the world in Genesis 1. And then he asked the man to wash himself in a pool of Siloam, which means sent. And that refers to Jesus being sent by his father to save sinners. And in doing so, he recreates this person anew. So the gospel story is there, that Jesus uh, creates the world and uh, humankind, human beings in it, and he renews and he recreates uh, us in, in him. 
And if you read the whole story in John chapter 9, in the next slide, please, uh, there's a, a procedure that the religious leaders asked him to do. The first um, we can see in verse 24, they summoned him again. They called the man who had been blind. And secondly, they interrogated him, Why did, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And verse 28, they insulted him. They reviled him. And finally, they threw him out. They excommunicated him. Now, if you think about this procedure, this four-step procedure that the religious leaders did, summoning, interrogating, insulting, and then throwing him out, that is the exact parallel. It's almost like a dress rehearsal for what they would do to Jesus. So if you look at John's gospel, chapter 18 and 19, they did exactly that. They summoned Jesus, they interrogated Jesus, they insulted Jesus, and then they threw him out to be crucified by the Roman soldiers on the Golgotha. And that's why John chapter 9 is such a precious passage because it points to none other than Christ. But what's the connection between disability and the gospel? Well, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, 15. But not only that, he is the image, the icon of the vulnerable God. And I want to show this picture, which was quite controversial when it was uh, published, because the artist drew a picture of Jesus as a person with Down syndrome. A painting of Jesus with uh, Down syndrome, thought to be a heresy when it came out, but this artwork, I think, powerfully showed how God came to the world with such a strong solidarity with human in our vulnerability and disability. Jesus is that exemplar of the fully human life because he embodied God's loving regard for humanity and graceful solidarity with humanity. Because friends, Jesus helped us not by virtue of his omnipotence, but by virtue of his weakness, of his suffering on the cross. And rather than shunning weakness, he embraced weakness as a means to become available to others. Rather than displaying power as he was tempted by the devil, Jesus identified the redemptive work of God in him and with that of the stranger, the weak, the destitute, suggested that whoever welcomed these people would welcome him as well. In fact, one author goes so far to say that the next slide, please. Jesus is the disabled God. I think that was an astonishing statement. And the basis of that is the resurrected body of Christ. See, when Jesus was arisen from death, his resurrected body was impaired. And that has profound implications for people with disabilities. Just read, read these words uh, with me. In presenting his impaired hands, because there was a nail 
on his right hand and left hand and his feet. In presenting his impaired hands and feet to his startled friends, the resurrected Jesus is revealed as the disabled God. The disabled God is not only the one from heaven, but the revelation of true personhood underscoring the reality that full personhood is fully compatible with the experience of disability. I thought that is awesome. You know, he showed his solidarity by saying that now I too have disabilities in my body. And it's not only a temporary one, it's a permanent one. In eternity, we're going to worship the Son of God who have disabilities on his hands and on his feet. Let me close with the story of a lady. Last week, I told you the story of um, two ladies, and today, another one. Her name is Johnny Erickson Tada. On July 30th, 1967, when she was only 17 years old, she was diving, and she dove into the Chesapeake Bay but she misjudged the shallowness of the water, and what happened was she had a fracture between uh, the fourth and the fifth vertebrae, and, be- and then instantly became a quadriplegic. She was paralyzed from the shoulders down, basically, and she had to be on a wheelchair for the rest of her life. The next slide uh, showed her picture. But you know what? To date, she had written over 40 books. She had some musical albums. She starred in an autobiographical movie of her life and a strong advocate, a strong Christian advocate for people with disabilities. Let me read you uh, her struggle. First, she said, my initial reaction to my condition, to my painful lifetime suffering is, why me, Lord? Why this? Why this suffering? And why now? And then she wrote, in those moments, I remember the real God. He came to me in the flesh in Christ into suffering. He did not offer advice and perspective from afar, but he stepped into my significant suffering. This reality changed the questions that rise up from my heart, that inward turning, why me, quiets down. And it lifted my eyes, and I began to look around. And then the second movement, if you like, I turned outward, and a new and wonderful question uh, from, uh, uh, forms uh, in my heart. And now instead of asking, why me? I ask, why you, Lord Jesus? Why would you enter this world of evils? Why would you go through loss, weakness, hardship, sorrow, and death? Why would you do this for me of all people? But you did. And you did this for the joy set before you. You did this for love. You did this showing the glory of God in your face. And as that deeper question sings home, I became joyously sane. 
the universe suddenly is no longer supremely about me, but it's about God's story in my life. And finally, the final movement, the question became, why not me? Why not this? And why not now? And this is what she wrote. In some way, my faith served as a three-word nightlight in a very dark world. Why not me? If my suffering shows the savior of the world, why not me? If I have the privilege of filling up the sufferings of Christ, why not me? If he, if he has sanctified to me his deepest stress, why not me? Of course, I do not want to suffer, but I've become willing like my savior who said, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, but yet not as I will, but as you will. And like him, like Jesus, my loud cries and tears will in fact be heard by the one who saves from death. And I thought, what a joy to read something in her life story that glorifies God even though she's completely paralyzed. You see, friends, I want to close by saying this. In John chapter 9, this is the whole chapter, right? Like some 40 verses about one man's story. But you know what? We, we do not know his name. There's a, another blind man in Mark chapter 10. We are told his story, Bartimaeus. But not this guy in John chapter 9. Nobody knew his name, even though his story occupied the whole chapter. Now, why John did not reveal his name? Because obviously everyone knew the name of this guy who was born from birth. Everyone in the village knew who he was. But we did not get to know that. Because I think, and this is what commentators uh, actually have written, that's why I, I also think with them. He wants to say to us, this blind man in John chapter 9 is you and I. This blind man is us. This blind man is every one of us in this room. His story is our story. We are born with spiritual blindness and we need the touch of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to see that we are indeed blind and we need Jesus to open our eyes. And as this man finally saw Jesus and said, Lord, I believe in verse 38, and then he worshiped him. Let us now do the same. And I want you to um, bow down with me and, and pray to God and worship him, God who cares about each one of us. Let, let us pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that in Jesus Christ, you save us not because we are able-bodied, not because we are moralistic or religious or productive and so on, but because you just first loved us unconditionally. That's why we can sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I was once lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Help us, Lord, to minister to those with disabilities around us in our lives. Because we, too, have 
limitations and weaknesses and vulnerabilities. We are no different than them. We need the grace of God. So help us to be your instruments of grace as we have received abundantly from you, Lord Jesus. And we ask this in that precious name. Amen.